Virginia Conversations on Virginia Public Radio is underwritten by the Virginia Education Association, the men and women working in Virginia's public schools. VEA, teaching, learning, leading. Online at veanea.org. Two and a half months since the massacre at Sandy Hook Elementary School. And keeping our children and educators safe continues to be a top priority. From local school boards to the General Assembly to the White House and Capitol Hill, how much is getting done? I'm May Lily Lee. Thanks for joining Virginia Conversations. This year's session of the General Assembly in Virginia saw several attempts by lawmakers to curb gun violence, proposed bills to ban assault-style weapons and to strengthen background checks on gun buyers were all defeated. The General Assembly did pass a bill increasing the punishment for so-called straw man purchases. That's when someone transfers a gun to a person who isn't legally allowed to own one. That measure was recommended by the Governor's Task Force on School and Canvas Safety. Among our guests today is a member of that task force, Delegate Joseph Yost of Blacksburg, joining us by phone. In our Roanoke studio is the police chief of Roanoke County, Howard Hall. And in our Richmond studio, Steve Staples, executive director of the Virginia Association of School Superintendents. And also joining us by phone, Jim Baldwin, executive director of the Virginia Association of Elementary School Principals. Thanks to all of you for being here. Hello, hello. Thank you. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Now, while many believe that changing our gun laws is one way to protect our schools, it's clear that will be a long debate. Meanwhile, there are other, more immediate proposals to keep our schools safe. We'll focus on those in the coming hour. Now, Chief Hall, when you and I last spoke, you had just come off a couple of public meetings. Tell us about the feedback at that time in Roanoke. What we've done in Roanoke County is start to put the stakeholders together uh, that have not only an interest but a, sta- um, a role to play in securing our schools. And we initiated that uh, very shortly after uh, the incident in Connecticut. And um, it was obviously not the first time that uh, we've talked about school safety, and I'm new to this area. So uh, well before me. Yeah, uh, you had our, come from Baltimore. I did. I came from Baltimore County, Maryland. Um, our police department, our school system has worked together for a long period of time, uh, on school safety plans, our SROs over middle and high schools, things of that nature. But we felt like the incident in Connecticut uh, provided an opportunity to really make sure that we're doing everything that we can uh, to make our students and our educators safe uh, while they're in the school buildings. So we're reviewing those school safety plans. Uh, We're working with the school board to look at the physical security of their buildings uh, to make sure that we keep threats out uh, and from ever getting into the building in the first place. Uh, And the school board's been very forthcoming in trying to identify some funds to do some things uh, of that nature, which I take as a very positive step. We're working with our fire and rescue uh, to make sure that our first response is coordinated. Uh, We're working with our communications and IT to make sure that we can talk to each other uh, in an emergency. Uh, So I'm really pleased about uh, what's happening in Roanoke County. Uh, the school superintendent and I speak frequently, uh, and I think we're both uh, committed to, to doing everything that we can uh, to keep our schools safe. Steve Staples, when this came about and there was a task force momentum occurring, did you think to yourself, well, you know, we've already got measures in place. This is something we've already been thinking of long before Sandy Hook. 
Well, the truth is, May Lily, I think superintendents and, and administrators are thinking about school safety every morning. It doesn't take an incident to remind them that that's priority one. But at the same time, I think we're all aware that, that there's more that can be done. Uh, uh, the chief just mentioned uh, school facilities. Uh, typically, schools are used over a 70-year span, so it's not unlikely that, that many of the schools in operation around the Commonwealth were built in the 50s when, when school safety wasn't the highest priority. So uh, there are lots of things we can do to continue to make our schools safer, even though they're pretty safe places today. It's, it's the occasional horrific incident that gets the attention, uh, and we need to focus on how we can do a better job with those. Now, Delegate Yost, I know that you're a member of the Task Force on School and Campus Safety, which is an initiative started by the governor. What are some of the things that the task force is focusing on now? Well, one of the things that we did, you know, we we began meeting in January, and we had to have initial recommendations to the governor by the 27th, um, or the 31st, and we passed out 27 recommendations. The governor um, then took those 27 recommendations and introduced eight bills to the General Assembly in early February, seven of which passed out. And the task force will continue to meet um, with a final report due by June 30th. I know the mental health work group um, has a meeting later this month, and uh, all the other sub-work groups, education and public safety, will continue to meet as well. Okay. One of the things I want to read here is a statement from the governor stating that there already are many significant measures in place. He talks about certain sections of the Code of Virginia that established the Virginia Center for School Safety and also set forth specific requirements for training, crisis management, emergency response, and other preventative measures for situations that pose a threat of harm to students or school personnel. So he acknowledges in the formation of the task force that you all are building upon what's already there. Is that right? Absolutely. You know, a lot of what um, the task force has looked at um, was put into place, you know, following the Virginia Tech shootings in 2007, a lot of them were at the higher ed level. And even a lot of the elementary schools and middle schools and high schools already had threat assessment models and teams in place. And so we're just building on that to ensure that if they don't have them, we're going to provide them with that information so they can get them. Jim Baldwin, we have a call from Scott from Richmond. This may be a question for you. Go ahead, Scott. Hi. Um, my wife is a school teacher, and uh, I've got several friends in law enforcement, and we've been you know, kicking around the idea of either teachers, administrators, and librarians being trained as you know, a tactical response branch of law enforcement or you know, having you know, law enforcement or former military who could go through training and become teachers, administrators, or librarians, and having, you know, a faster tactical response in the school. Okay, what do you think uh, about that? Yeah. Jim, do you want to take that? Yeah, I can just uh, respond to the idea. We have never felt, and we expressed this when some of the original bills came out, that we don't think it is a good idea to arm personnel in schools, especially at the elementary level. We try to create a safe, open, uh, welcoming environment for our children and our families. And the idea of having armed personnel in the school is not what we thought would be best, uh, given the fact that the amount of training to make a person extremely proficient is an ongoing process. And it is not always something that has been fully funded. 
uh, in our schools as far as training for personnel. And so we didn't think this would be a good uh, viable alternative. And we even uh, even not against farming um, personnel. But I mean, these people would obviously have to be well trained, and I mean, they would have to be, you know, some branch of law enforcement. I mean, Scott, let me ask you this question. I just want to jump. Scott, I just want to jump in for a second. Before Scott, can you hear me okay? Before you continue with that, let me ask you this question. Would You would feel safe with your wife as a teacher being armed with a gun? Uh, if she, you know, passed all the proper, you know, physical training, mental training, um, you know, if she was properly trained and, and she, if she was interested in doing that. Um, I know at her school they have several former um, military who teach... Um, and they're all, you know, they think it would probably be a good idea if, you know, if they were properly trained and if they were, you know, a, basically law enforcement officers who just happened to teach physics. I mean. <laughs> mm-hmm. And would you and would you feel that she wouldn't be safe if we fell short of arming her in, in no, schools? No, and it's not, no, I don't feel, feel like she wouldn't be safe. But, you know, if you just look at average police response times versus the average length of active shooter Incidents. Even if you have one school resource officer, you know, chasing around one person, you know, it, it'd be better if you had four people chasing one person rather than one. And if you could pay them an additional, you know, ten thousand dollars a year in addition to their school salary, you, know, you could get four or five trained armed personnel for the price of one school resource officer. Okay, Scott. So. Thank you so much for your call this morning, and I encourage you to stay with us because in the second half of the program we will be talking about this as well. We have a story from Sandy Hausman about the proposal. Thanks again. In the meantime, let me talk to you about this, Police Chief. Do you get that often? Give everybody a gun, and they'll be they'll be fine. Well, I think it's clearly part of the national debate at this point you know, about arming uh, teachers or staff in the schools, and uh, the points that Jim made, I think, were you know, right on target. Uh, it's not as if you can simply hand somebody a gun and say, take that to school with you uh, and have the problem solved. And in uh, Scott's defense, of course, he did say everybody should be properly armed oh, he did. and trained. Right? He did. and that, But that takes time and resources. So there's a training component of that, not just once, but ongoing. Uh, from a school system perspective, there also need to be a policy component of that. Uh, you have to provide instruction and guidance to your uh, personnel, just as we do in the police department, about how that weapon is to be carried, and when that weapon uh, is to be used. Uh, And, of course, I think one of the major points is by doing that, by arming uh, teacher or school staff, we are introducing a dangerous weapon uh, into a school environment, uh, and that may not be conducive to everything that a teacher has to do during the day. Uh, So one of my fears would be, you know, at some point a teacher is going to put that weapon in a desk drawer uh, or leave it in a pocketbook or a briefcase. Uh, and somebody who shouldn't have access to it uh, could get access to it, and, and that's a problem. And from my perspective as a police officer, operationally, uh, if we had a critical incident and our officers are, are entering uh, that school, uh, it's going to be hard for us to know who's supposed to have the gun and who isn't. Uh, we're not obviously going to recognize all the school staff, and in that type of serious incident, if we come across somebody uh, that is brandishing a weapon, the outcome of that could be... Um, problematic, to say the least. Delegate Yosk, I'm going to circle back to you because as a delegate, you get a broad perspective uh, around these issues, not just around gun safety, not just around safety. How about mental health? What about attacking this issue where it can begin oftentimes, which is in providing services to mental health consumers, people who are in need, who are in crisis, and who commit these kinds of acts 
Tell us your perspective on that. Oh, I absolutely, that's where, you know, that's where the, the rubber meets the road for a lot of these issues. You know, I'm, I've been a huge mental health advocate um, during my two years so far in the General Assembly. And when the, the governor issued his executive for a task force, I wanted to be on that um, to provide a mental health perspective. And the task force had several recommendations related to mental health, um, a lot of which um, we saw funded in the budget. Thankfully, um, for me personally, you know, I, I gave a speech on the General Assembly floor um, several weeks ago when we were still in session about mental health issues. And, you know, looking back over time, not only at the incident in Connecticut or incidents in Arizona and Colorado and in Virginia Tech, you know, it seems like the mental health component can often get left behind in a more flashy debate about gun control. Um, and so I try to bring a little bit of, um, you know, prominence um, towards that debate. Um, and I think that we've been very successful in getting some funding for additional services. Can you give us an idea of those specific services or in what ways uh, has the new administration beefed up mental health services? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, in, the, in the budget that we passed out uh, almost a week ago tomorrow, um, we put an additional $900,000 towards, $900, towards children's mental health funding. And this was already on top of $1.8 million additional that was appropriated last year in the two-year budget. Um, we had an additional $750,000 for discharge assistance planning services. So once an individual is leaving a state mental health hospital, these services kick in so they're able to transition more um, smoothly into the community. And this was on top of $1.5 million. Two of the biggest things I think that we did, we put in 600000 for mental health first aid training and 500000 for suicide prevention training. And these programs are aimed at the general population. We're going to work with school personnel, like anybody that's involved in the public sector, um, to train them about mental health issues, um, basic symptomology. You know, if a person's experienced a mental health crisis, what do I do? Um, and I think these will go a long way in providing education um, to the general population about uh, mental health systems. Steve Staples, Executive Director of the Virginia Association of School Superintendents. I'd like you to field this call. This comes in from Liv in Charlottesville. You want to discuss the impact of police officers in schools as maybe a present force. Good morning. Hi. Um, yes, my question is, um, I've read statistics that show that when police officers are in schools, that what really ends up happening is that the students become criminals. They get arrested more often, they get detained, and I'd like for the callers or the speakers to respond to that. Right. So, Steve, thank you so much, Liv. Uh, Steve, what would happen if, if police officers were a constant presence? Well, really, we have to consider that there are two different kinds of, of police presence in school. One is school resource officers, and one is uh, police officers who are there more for security reasons. The school resource officers are typically really engaged in the school. They interact with students. They might even be teaching classes. They're, they're really part of the faculty and staff, and I think that's what uh, Liv is referring to with her statistics. Typically, in those cases, school resource officers become aware of issues from other students in the student body that lead to law enforcement actions. Um, when when a police officer is there simply as a security or as a deterrent, I don't think they're as engaged in the student body, and their role isn't so much to serve the school. It's to kind of be a visible presence that prevents others from coming onto campus or into the building without permission. Uh, so I think we have to decide which role we're talking about. 
to determine whether or not it's a good thing or a bad thing. I think overall school resource officers are a good thing because fortunately many of the actions they take uh, prevent larger issues from happening. Uh, and so we certainly, as a, an association, we support that idea of, of putting school resource officers into schools. Could I add to that? Yes, but let's cut to Jim real quickly. Jim Baldwin, Executive Director of the Virginia Association of Elementary School Principals. Your thoughts on that? Yes, we support the idea of the uh, SRO as well. Okay. They have been in elementary schools, middle and high schools now for a number of years. The children are familiar with them in their presence. Uh, but unfortunately, over the past several years, due to funding restraints uh, that are on the system, uh, in the elementary level, they have had to cut back some, somewhat. There are some schools that still have them. And I think they do, as Steve said, provide a valuable uh, opportunity for children to interact with a police officer, become familiar with them, see them as someone that can support them and help them. And I think this is a valuable learning lesson, especially for young children. Okay, Police Chief Hall. Uh, I just wanted to point out, uh, and I, I won't repeat everything that was just said, because the, the role of the SRO is clearly beyond law enforcement. Uh, we have 10 full-time SROs in Roanoke County uh, that cover 11 schools, middle and high schools. In the 2011-2012 school year, they placed 119 criminal charges. And when you think about 180 plus or minus school days times how many thousand kids in those schools, uh, that's a very small number of charges and probably would have resulted in a charge anyway. We, schools would have called 911 and our patrol force would have responded and done the same thing. Okay, thanks so much. And you are listening to Virginia Conversations on Virginia Public Radio. This reminder that past editions of Virginia Conversations can be heard at virginiapublicradio.org. That's virginiapublicradio.org. We're talking about school safety, and we'll be back with more on school security, school safety for teachers, educators, and students in about 90 seconds. You're listening to Virginia Conversations on Virginia Public Radio. Today we're discussing ways to improve school security to keep children and educators safe. Our guests today are Delegate Joseph Yost, a member of the Governor's Task Force on School and Campus Safety, Chief Howard Hall of the Roanoke County Police Department, Jim Baldwin, Executive Director of the Virginia Association of Elementary School Principals, and Steve Staples, Executive Director of the Virginia Association of School Superintendents. And Steve, we have a person who knows you. Pam from Yorktown is a former educator. Good morning, Pam. Hi. <clears throat> Excuse me, I'm not an educator. Uh, I am a former school board member. Oh, okay. It says here, yeah. former educator. <laughs> <laughs> Good morning, Pam. Um, Pam Pouchot. <laughs> yes, um, I recognize I your voice. <laughs> Hi, Steve. Um, I'm concerned that what has not been addressed is that firearms are legal on school property to be held by students as well as people attending non-school uh, sponsored functions in the building. Um, and th the law is such that these can happen. Um, it is an expellable offense because in 1999 my organization went to the General Assembly and made it an expellable for a student to have that firearm, but it's not illegal if it's properly stored unloaded. 
I can come into the building with a concealed weapon uh, loaded if I have a concealed weapons permit and I'm there for a PTA meeting. Uh, we don't address people walking through our doors with loaded firearms. Okay, How well, do we protect against somebody that's legally allowed in your building? Okay, thanks so much, Pam. You want to start with that, Steve? I will, and, and Pam, thanks for that question. I think that's an issue we debated uh, during the time that I was a superintendent as well. We actually came up to the General Assembly and uh, advocated perhaps for a little more restriction in that area, and I think that's part of the problem. Uh, what we have to understand is the more guns that we introduce into the environment, the more likely it is that even something accidental is going to occur, and, and I'm, I'm very sensitive to the people who think, well, if we could just get people armed or get people into the schools with guns, it would be okay. But we know that accidental gun deaths are fairly prevalent in the United States from people who occasionally even know what they're doing with guns get shot. So I think Pam's on to something in the sense that we really do have to look at how and when guns are allowed to be introduced into the school setting because that just increases the likelihood that somebody's going to be shot even accidentally. Chief Hall. Uh, While I am somewhat new to Virginia and still catching up on Virginia's laws, it is my understanding that uh, firearms are not allowed on school property. That's not true. Uh, 18.2-308.1 and 18.2-308. Please uh, read them all the way to the bottom. You are allowed under certain circumstances to have a firearm on school property. Uh, I'm also under the understanding that school boards, uh, unlike local governments in general, have the ability to place additional restrictions on the carrying of weapons. Uh, no, the only facilities. thing they can do is for the teachers, uh, as a condition of employment, they may say that the teachers, or excuse me, staff, may not have firearms in their vehicles. Um, that's the only thing they're allowed to do. The rest of it, no. They can expel <clears throat> a student for possession, but an expellable offense is not a criminal offense. That's policy versus uh, law. And uh, a student can be expelled, but they cannot legally be arrested, although they are frequently for mere possession of a firearm properly stored in their vehicle. And that's an unlocked vehicle, by the way, by law. So, yeah, <laughs> you really, really need to look this up because there are enough school divisions, uh, excuse me, um, uh, communities where law enforcement does not know the law. And it's unfortunate <laughs> that the law is in effect because an angry student <clears throat> can easily access a firearm in their vehicle, load it in a matter of seconds, and walk back into that building. I hope someone will email us, too. I'm just trying to look this up quickly as well. Five states where you can bring guns to school. Colorado's one of them. Okay. And I would love it if we could get emails on this as well. And I do appreciate, Pam, your input on this. We'll, we'll, we'll fine-tune it. Okay. Thank You've you very much. You've obviously researched it. Thank you so much. Mm, bye-bye. And that brings us right to our package from Sandy Hausman. One proposal raised in several quarters is to put armed guards in schools and even arming educators themselves the VEA, the Virginia Education Association, has weighed in on that idea. Here's reporter Sandy Hausman. Virginia's governor has said it might be wise to put armed guards into public schools to try and prevent future shootings. But the head of the Virginia Education Association, which represents teachers in the Commonwealth, is skeptical about that idea. We're certainly not in favor of arming our teachers. You know, there's a reason that prison guards don't carry weapons. And that's a very stark kind of contrast, but there is that danger if you have adults in a school building that are carrying weapons as to, you know, how well are they going to be able to control those weapons and keep them out of students or any other adult that walks in hands. Meg Gruber thinks many legislative proposals are desperate measures in response to Newtown, and she believes armed guards would create a climate 
that's not ideal for learning. I'm Sandy Hausman. So what do you think about that? Let's, let's go. We haven't heard from you, Jim. What do you think about that particular camp? I, I agree with Meg on that particular issue. Uh, she has a very good point, is that sometimes a child that could be uh, irrational at the moment uh, could overpower uh, a teacher or a, a staff person in a school, and that, then that firearm, which was introduced into the building, becomes possibly a deadly weapon. So I agree with her. I oppose, and our association opposes, the guns in the building at any time and in any way, and we'll do what we can to see if we can get the legislation in place to make sure that that, in fact, is the way it's going to be. All right. What about any other thoughts on that? Anybody else want to jump in? Yeah, May Lilly, Steve Staples. Uh, I think one of the things we have to consider when we talk about uh, an armed guard is how well could an armed guard, even a well-trained, well-equipped one, actually cover an entire school? Let's just think about an elementary school. It's highly likely that there are probably 10 or 12 exterior doors to an elementary school. During different parts of the day, children are coming and going from the building out to the playground, over to the cafeteria. We actually have campus-style schools. And so I understand. I think I think we'd feel better, perhaps, if there was an armed guard there. But I'm not sure that an armed guard automatically brings us the true security that we want simply because of the number of uh, exits and entrances. When you go onto a military base, there's one way in or out, and they have armed guards there, and they control it. Schools have multiple ways in or out, and unless we're really going to change the entire way school day operates, uh, school days operate, I'm afraid an armed guard could be in the wrong place at the right time. I would remind your listeners that Columbine had uh, uh, school security officers and unfortunately, they were, weren't, simply weren't able to prevent a horrible incident from occurring. That's an excellent point. Uh, you know, uh, one SRO or two SROs or an armed guard can only be at one place at one time. Uh, and there are many points of, vul- of vulnerability around the school campus uh, that simply can't be covered all the time, which I think makes even more important a more comprehensive approach to how we address the issue. Elise from Buena Vista, go ahead with your question or comment. Hello? Good morning. Good morning. Shall I go ahead? Yes. I have so often thought that because guns are the problem and uh, we think more guns in the schools would solve things, um, that people should start thinking outside that box of hypnosis with guns. There are other ways that schools can be protected, and it has occurred to me that very well-trained dogs who help the blind or who help um, handicapped veterans or who can be trained to do amazing things could be trained to um, intercept people with guns, and that uh, this could be a... a, uh, much more sensible, workable solution to this problem of security in the schools. I think the Europeans would have thought of this a long time ago and put guard dogs in the schools, um, uh, either police dogs or trained labs or Dobermans or some other 
very intelligent, well-trained dog. And I wonder why uh, there has been no thought of this possibility because it's very doable with a very with intelligent trained dogs. Thank you so much. Who wants to take that comment? Well, she's correct that you can, in fact, uh, train a dog to uh, detect weapons, explosives, things like that. You see them at the airports uh, frequently, and, and many police departments do have those. You could probably accomplish the same thing, essentially, by putting metal detectors uh, on the doors if that's what a school system wanted to do. Um, both require human resources to uh, facilitate. Uh, neither are perfect, uh, but that principle would work. We have a call from Clinton from Roanoke. Go ahead with your question or comment. Uh, yeah, I'd just like to kind of add two points to the conversation. Um, one is teachers carrying weapons. I can see the, the, the argument about that, but I feel maybe it would be more prudent if you only had a handful of people in each school that would carry a weapon, such as, let's say, the principal, the vice principal, and maybe one other member of staff, and make sure, you know, that they go through the proper training, because as some people have mentioned, I mean, even properly trained, seasoned law enforcement officers can still make mistakes on using a weapon, and these are people who have excellent levels of training. Uh, so maybe it will be better to just have those people to carry weapons, if anybody's going to carry a weapon um, at all. And my second little thing to throw in is I think to solve this problem takes more than just one big final solution. I think a lot of the suggestions made, just like the previous caller, about using dogs to look, look for uh, dangerous people or weapons, um, I mean, that's a good idea. I think it's going to take a multi-pronged approach. It's a community effort uh, to try to deter having crime to begin with in the area, um, maybe using the weapons, the security situation, the school resource officers. It's just a, one big combined effort could help to deter some of these problems. But a school is almost like a miniature city in itself. You've got little areas, you've got a police, you've got to protect from the outside, too. And no matter what you do, you know, this is the real world. You're not going to stop everything from happening. You're still maybe going to have an incident, but all you can do is your best. So just throw that out there, and y'all pick it, pick it apart. <laughs> Thanks for taking my call. <laughs> Thank you, Clinton. Good morning to you. Does anyone want to take that as uh, we move on to the next question? Yeah, yeah. This, is, yeah this is Delta. Yes, I'll take Sort of that one really quick. Delegate Yost. Yeah. Okay, go ahead. I, th- I think the gentleman is absolutely right. You know, these, these situations that have, that have occurred, you know, whether it's Connecticut or Blacksburg or Colorado or Arizona, these are, these are complex problems, and they didn't, you know, just arise overnight. And it's going to take an across-the-board approach looking at a variety of different things. You know, we spent probably the last 32 minutes talking mostly about guns because that's what people like to talk about. But one of the things that I try to get people to understand is there's more to these issues than just guns. Um, the second comment that I'll make, you know, one of the things that you hear when, when an incident like Connecticut takes place is, you know, putting, putting more guns there. You know, I'm very ambivalent about that. Um, you know, we, we base all of our ideas and facts that putting more guns there, this situation would have happened. But we don't know that because, you know, that's completely, you know, 
either you can predict the future or you can't predict the future. Um, you know, I, so I just don't know. A lot of it's hypothetical for me. Okay. Thank you. Jim Baldwin. Yes, and he, uh, Delegate Yost, presented much of what I was going to say. This is a very complex problem. It's a social problem. It's a uh, health issue problem, uh, mental health, and any one approach may not, in fact, be the best. It must be looked at, and it has to be a multifaceted approach. You know, it is interesting to note that we put out that caution at the beginning of this program, which is we realize people want to talk about guns. We realize it's very much on the minds of people. Uh, And while we open it up to anybody's calls and comments, uh, that we would like to be able to talk about some of the other measures and ways of preventing these uh, acts of violence. Uh, This is your show, though. So if, as callers, you are still interested in gun safety, by all means, bring that up, too. It is just fascinating, the flow of our conversation. And to that end, we have Donna from Southwest Virginia. Good morning to you. Good morning. There are a couple of issues. I, I represent a school board in a somewhat rural, remote area for Southwest Virginia, and one of the things is staffing requirements. Uh, it's very hard to get good teachers and good administrators to come to an area that does not have many amenities and is very low on the salary scale. And I'd really hate to see that ability with a firearm be one of the criteria for trying to hire somebody when it's so hard to get good people anyway. The other thing is that if there is some measure to allow or to uh, uh, require uh, that guns be uh, uh, handled or whatever by people close to the classroom, what would be the criteria for this? Obviously, there would have to be some kind of competency and background check for this. But then what about the people that you did not grant the right to carry in the school system to? And if those individuals then were either uh, subject to or witnessed a, an incident in the school system to which they felt they were, for which they felt they were not adequately protected or able to protect others, would the school system be liable for not having provided that staff member, a custodian, a uh, whatever, um, you know, a cafeteria worker, uh, a, a weapon, as opposed to just those that perhaps in the classrooms or just administrators, uh, because the criteria, what, what are the criteria if something such as that were, uh, were mandated or offered as an option to schools? And we could very well be, be seen as uh, having deprived someone uh, unduly of the opportunity to defend themselves, which is a case described by many of the students at Virginia Tech in the wake of that when they said they were legal gun uh, holders. Thank you for your question, Donna. Steve Staples, would you like to take that? Well, that was a really complicated issue. First, uh, she's absolutely right. Um, we're always concerned when we introduce more firearms into the building as to what are the liability aspects. It's such a minute issue in, in the wake of, of tragic deaths of students. But in the long term, you do have to consider the, the possibility that any gun that comes into a school could be used by anyone in that school at some point in time. And that's always a concern. But I think the caller earlier really hit on it, and that is that this is such a broad-based issue that, that no one solution is going to really solve the problem. And I think Delegate Yost's comments early on about the mental health uh, portions of the solution are really important to be part of the conversation. Whenever there's a horrific shooting in the aftermath, folks begin to examine the psyche of the shooter 
And typically, there's always the, oh, boy, why couldn't we see this coming mentality, that we should have been able to see that, that this person was troubled. And the truth is, oftentimes, folks are aware of it, but, but the logistics of bringing help or assistance to that person simply aren't uh, available to school personnel. With, with HIPAA laws or FERPA laws that prevent the sharing of information, uh, we may well know that troubled young people are out there and we simply can't collaborate across agencies. It's, it's one of the things that I'm hopeful that the governor's task force will be able to address. And remember, Clinton did make that good point. He also said all of your folks, the superintendent, might want to consider being armed. Thank you so much for your calls. You're listening to Virginia Conversations on Virginia Public Radio. Terry and Paul from Christiansburg and Virginia Beach. Hold on. We'll be back to your calls after this break. We'll continue our discussion of school security in a moment. But first, let me tell you about next week, a special Where Are They Now edition. We've tracked down the Virginia teen who took his battle for cancer treatment to federal court. And for the first time, one of the girls switched at birth at UVA talks about growing up. That's next week's Virginia Conversations. Stay with us. We're back in about 90 seconds. Virginia Conversations on Virginia Public Radio is underwritten by the Virginia Education Association, supporting public discourse through sponsorship of Virginia Public Radio. Resources for parents and teachers online at veanea.org. More information about Virginia Conversations and other Virginia Public Radio programming can be found online at virginiapublicradio.org. This is Virginia Public Radio. You're listening to Virginia Conversations on VPR. Today we're discussing ways to improve school security to keep children and educators safe. Our guests today are Delegate Joseph Yost, a member of the Governor's Task Force on School and Campus Safety, Chief Howard Hall of the Roanoke County Police Department, Jim Baldwin, Executive Director of the Virginia Association of Elementary School Principals, and Steve Staples, Executive Director of the Virginia Association of School Superintendents. And we've got a call from Terry from Christiansburg. Good morning. Um, I feel that gun-free zones protect no one except the perpetrator. That's why they go into these places, because they know that they're not going to meet any kind of armed resistance um, my wife works at Virginia Tech, and she was on campus the, the day of the shooting. And I feel like if one of those or several of those cadets had been armed, we probably wouldn't be talking about the tragedy in such a way that we are now. Um, I know they go through firearms training and stuff, so, I mean, I'll hang up and uh, get your opinion on that. Thanks, Terry. It is an interesting question. I, you know, when I think about what you just said, I, I all of a sudden put myself in the mind of one of these perpetrators, and I'm not so sure when in a moment... Uh, in a trance, in a moment of feeling suicidal or of feeling uh, this this rage, one wonders whether or not there is an armed place to go. What What are your thoughts on that? Well, maybe we should make a distinction between a, a gun free zone and, and perhaps what he's talking about is you know signs posted, things like that. Um, I think, however, having laws that prohibit uh, weapons on school property give law enforcement, the justice system, an opportunity to um, hold people accountable, you know, that are doing things uh, that are dangerous. And uh, we were able to obtain a copy of the Virginia 
uh, law over the break uh, oh, we got related, just related for, to this. Yes, for those who just tuned in, we got a call from Pam from Yorktown, and we've been trying to settle the issue of whether guns are permitted or not permitted on school property. So what do you have here? In general terms, they're not. Uh, 18.2-308.1 defines a firearm uh, and basically says if anybody uh, has that on public, private, religious, elementary, middle, or high schools or school buses, uh, guilty of a Class 6 felony. There are, however, some exceptions, and I think this is where our previous caller was referring. Um, There's, of course, exceptions for law enforcement and for legal purposes, uh, there is an exception for a person who possesses an unloaded firearm that is in a closed container, uh, in or upon a motor vehicle, uh, or an unloaded shotgun or rifle in a firearms rack uh, in a motor vehicle. Okay, so is that the open carry versus concealed carry uh, issue? That's not open carry. That's unloaded okay. in a container okay, got or it. in a rack, in a vehicle, in a parking lot. What uh, about a purse? Does that count as a container? Uh, a purse in a motor vehicle could potentially be a container. But not a purse within the classroom or no. within the school building? Um, okay. No. And the second exception that I believe she referred to, uh, a person who has a valid concealed handgun permit uh, can have that concealed handgun uh, in the parking lot uh, or in the vehicle vehicle ingress or egress to the school, uh, but they would not be able to carry that in the school building uh, itself. Okay. Pam, you're welcome to call back, too, if that helps clarify some things. In the meantime, let's take this call from Paul from Virginia Beach. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you. I, I think I, I want to just speak to the uh, firearms in the schools and just keep it focused on that for my comment. I think we're skipping an, an intermediate uh, a possibility when we go right from prohibition to arming the staff, you know, uh, as a, throughout the day. Vice principals, teachers, counselors carrying firearms in the halls is just not a realistic approach. There are so many problems with that, uh, the least of which is not that these people are supposed to be connecting with students, and, and they just shouldn't be armed all the time. The, the middle ground, to my mind, is and many military units practice this. They have a security force, a designated trained uh, force that is trained in firearm proficiency and tactics, because tactics are something that are very important when you're talking about armed security in an event. The firearms are kept in an armory or a, a central location and issued in an event. The, uh, it can be uh, broadcast over the PA system covertly or overtly, and then you have staff who, members of the staff can volunteer to participate in a, uh, and be trained in a program that's developed by experts and vetted by proponents and critics. Localities should have the option to decide whether to implement a program like this, and and it can be an out of the box program that everybody you know understands, and it could just it's just a middle ground to this arming the staff in a school all the time. We appreciate your comment. Pam is back from Yorktown. Pam, go ahead with your comment. Uh, yes, uh, again, uh, there are <clears throat> there is another exception, and that's for non school sponsored functions. And uh, it says nothing about whether children can be present or not. If you have a, an executive PTA board meeting and you ask for uh, the principal, can we meet in the li- corner of the library or the cafeteria, generally speaking, they tell you, of course you can. But PTA is non-school sponsored. Um, little League, uh, Boy Scout, Girl Scout meetings in school. Very often there are children after school <clears throat> that are you know, having different meetings throughout the building. So, again, children can be present. And you can come carrying if you have a loaded, con- uh, a loaded weapon with a concealed weapons permit or open carry. 
Um, That's an interesting point. But the density would be much lower during those non-school sponsored Well, events. yes, of course it would be, but not necessarily. I mean, if you had, like I said, a PTA board meeting during school hours, and a board meeting is only three to five people uh, meeting, one of them <laughs> conceivably could be armed. Um, <clears throat> you also have a situation where off-duty police officers uh, are... Um, um, those who carry concealed, such as detectives, could come into the building uh, on personal business and carry their weapons, which in of itself I don't have a problem with. What I have a problem with is they're not required to notify the central office that they are, in fact, off-duty police officers who are carrying. Uh, this sets up potential problems because you don't know they're off-duty police officers, and you could end up with a SWAT team out there taking out a police officer. Gotcha. Okay. Thanks for uh, your call back on that. Okay, and one other point. Sure. Not all people who do mass shootings are mentally ill. Uh, delusional, perhaps, but not mentally ill. They're angry, and they're suicidal. Well taken. In fact, thank you, Pam, for that, and that segues us into our next caller. Uh, how do you pronounce your name? Is it Deanna or Dina? Good morning. Deanna or Dina? Deanna. Oh, good morning. You're from Williamsburg, and you I want to am. talk a little bit about that issue around mental health. Yes. Um, for, well, I guess first the last caller said not everyone is, like, mentally insane or whatever. They they might just be angry or suicidal, but I think just in what she said, that, that proves that there's an issue. There's a mental health issue, and a lot of people exhibit signs when they're suicidal or angry about things, and... Um, I, I just think the conversation has been too much about guns in schools and who should have guns and, you know, like how the guns should be used and blah, blah, blah. But I think what's really important is why are people bringing guns to school or bringing guns to to certain places? Like um, the guy, the, the, the guy uh, James, whatever his name was, the guy in Colorado who shot up the movie theater, like, he had been trying to seek mental health, but, like, there was too long of a waiting list. And the guy, the the latest one in Connecticut, he had things all over his Facebook page about what he was going to do. And, and, and those signs are just ignored way too often. And I think there needs to be, they need to be more, paid more attention to. And the issue isn't, I mean, there is an issue with guns, obviously, because they're, that's what's causing the violence. But the underlying issues of mental health are what's really causing the violence. You, you know what I mean? Yes. Deanna, are you uh, involved in counseling or in the mental health field? Um, well, I'm actually getting a master's degree in social work, so um, sort of. Not yet, but mm -hmm. I'm on my way. This is this is the point that the governor is bringing out, which is let's beef up our mental health services as well. And stay with us, Deanna, because I think you're the minority voice here, and we have been wanting to talk more about this end of things as well. Delegate Yost, she's right on target. She is absolutely. Um, you know, I agree with a lot, what, a lot of what she said. One thing I would want to point out: um, we do have to be careful. Um, there already is a very a very large stigma about mental health issues in our society. Um, and one thing that I do want to point out is not not that everybody everybody who has a mental illness is not violent, um, and we just we just need to remember that when we're having these conversations because in reality, you know, somebody who does not have a mental illness um, is more likely to go out and commit a crime than somebody who does. And the, the statistics show that somebody who has a mental illness is more likely to be victimized. Um, so we just have to be careful when we're pointing out some of these issues. 
And Deanna, have you had any further uh, involvement with NAMI Virginia, the National Alliance on Mental Illness, uh, or other organizations that are trying to beef up prevention of these kinds of acts? Well, I just think, like like how um, the, the last guy said, mental, it, mental illness or the people who think mental illness is the problem is in the minority. I think it, it needs to be brought to the forefront and... Um, Obviously, everyone who is mentally ill is not violent, but anyone who is capable of performing, you know, doing these violent acts has some sort of mental health issue. And at some point, they they called out for help, and, and it was ignored because I think in our country, in our state, and, you know, however you want to phrase it, uh, mental health issues are just, there's such a stigma surrounding them, and... Like, people don't want to address that issue. They just want to address the guns and the violence that happened after the fact, where if we, if we focused on, on, on the problem at hand, then the solution would be a lot easier. Thanks so much for your call, Deanna. And I want to read this statement from NAMI, Virginia, around its 2012 budget priorities. It said, in 2008, on the heels of a horrific tragedy, Virginia's mental health system took a small step forward with a long overdue infusion of funding to strengthen community-based services for people with mental illness. The following fiscal year, Virginia grappled with the depths of the economic downturn and budget cuts. At the same time, more people found themselves in need of help and support. A national survey at the height of the recession found that jobless people were four times as likely to report serious mental health problems. And I think we do get into an issue of whether or not people are certifiably mentally ill or that people just need mental health services. People are out there who are ready to snap. Uh, So thank you very much, Deanna, for that call. And John from Henrico, you're on the air. Hello there. Good morning. Good morning. I have uh, two comments, uh, two areas I'd like to comment on. One is uh, with regard to the effectiveness or what I believe would be a lack of effectiveness of arming teachers and or putting armed guards uh, in in uh, schools. And I'm saying armed guards short of uh, actual police officers. Um, what has occurred in all of our schools is really aberrant behavior. I mean, if you look at Connecticut, you look at your Aurora shooting in, in Colorado, you look at Virginia Tech, you look at Columbine. Uh, if we are to be creating a group of guards for our schools or and or arming teachers, that is like coming up with a, a standard solution for an aberrant behavior. And I think it would not be effective because, um, uh, look, let's take what a police officer does. A police officer is ready every day. He is challenged often, time and time again, and he becomes effective on the basis of his experience in the job. We put teachers in schools with with, uh, guns and or guards who have that as a a unique unique, uh, profession. They aren't going to have the, uh, the testing or the readiness that a police officer would have. My parallel would be...
on, you know, just uh, the training that we might be giving uh, an equivalent nature to teachers with guns. I mean, is a, a police officer isn't going to recognize what kids need remediation, what kids are uh, ahead of the class, how to handle uh, discipline within a class. Those things come from experience and years of experience. The thought that we can fix a problem with guns in our, our schools or, or people breaking into our schools with uh, weapons and killing their children by arming teachers and or for having guards just doesn't, doesn't cut the bill. Thank you so much for that comment. I have, I have a second point, if I may. Here's our problem. We are running out of time, right. John, and I want to I give Nikki in Charlottesville one last chance. It's a comment. I, okay. Can you keep it to five seconds? I'll keep it to five seconds. We should be not working on gun control, but weapons control. And I'll come back and comment another time. There is a difference. Okay. John, thank you so much. Nikki from Charlottesville, you are our last caller for this hour. Go ahead with your question or comment. Thank you so much. I'm a psychiatrist, and I just wanted to set up a stark contrast. The access to mental health treatment in our state and across the country, I think, is pretty paltry. Uh, even for folks who have insurance, a lot of insurance companies don't want to pay for mental health treatment. People with limited resources have a great great difficulty accessing mental health treatment. Um, in contrast to that, thanks in large measure, I think, to the efforts of the NRA, we all of us have almost unlimited access to assault rifles and high-capacity ammunition clips. And um, I'm just not sure where the sanity in our social structure is going to be rediscovered when we have that kind of contrast. Thank you so much. And I think that's a good way to round out our, our whole program, Nikki. Thanks for contributing that. Maybe just one last comment from our two superintendent uh, uh, director and our elementary school principal director. Let's start with you, Steve. Well, I, I think exactly right. The conversation today has been interesting, but it really has focused on whether or not we bring guns into or out of school, and I think that's just a small segment of the overall issue. Uh, ultimately, we may end up with the discussion of how much of our individual civil liberties are going to be compromised for society's good. Uh, we've already agreed when we go to a, an airport to catch an airplane, we're willing to put up with giving up some individual liberties for the good of all the people on the plane. I'm not sure where we are in schools for that. Are, are folks willing to subject themselves to both a mental and a physical screening before we give them access to schools? It's an interesting uh, question. And Jim, about 15 seconds. Yes, I would like to just acknowledge that schools today are very, very complex places. They are essentially a social services system for our children, and their primary responsibility should be education and layering the social services on top of it, and then on top of that, policing. I think is asking more than what schools are designed to do. I want to thank all of you for joining us. Jim Baldwin, Executive Director of the Virginia Association of Elementary School Principals. Steve Staples, Executive Director of the Virginia Association of School Superintendents. Chief Howard Hall of the Roanoke County Police Department. And Delegate Joseph Yost, a member of the Governor's Task Force on School and Campus Safety and a big 
mental health consumer advocate. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for listening. Next week, where are they now? We catch up with star child Abraham Cherix, and we revisit the story of Switched at Birth at UVA Medical Center. I'm May Lily Lee. Have a great week. Virginia Conversations on Virginia Public Radio is underwritten by the Virginia Education Association, the men and women working in Virginia's public schools. VEA, teaching, learning, leading. Online at veanea.org. And by listeners of this Virginia Public Radio member station. Listeners can hear this program again or access other Virginia Public Radio news content at virginiapublicradio.org. This is Virginia Public Radio.